Welcome back to Ghostly Talk. This is Scott L. This is Amber. And tonight we had on the show Stephen Browdy, who I was totally geeked to have on the show because he is a genuine parapsychologist. And I think there's a whole surge of interest in genuine parapsychology coming back again. And and my my thoughts, if you've read Dean Radin's book, Real Magic, I think his book has had a huge influence on people starting to look at parapsychology again, not just ghost hunting, yeah. not what you see on TV or what you're reading in, in books um, that are just uh, about ghost stories and stuff, but genuine parapsychology and the study of psi. So I didn't realize how much of a beating he took. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, anybody, anybody that we're studies, gonna talk about that. You're yeah, gonna anybody that studies parapsychology and they are yeah. part of the academic world pretty much get shit on uh, because you're like the laughing stock of the of the academic community. Stephen Browdy, like it, anything fringe. It's not just parapsychology because also Dr. Robert Schock. Oh God. Uh, would yeah. catch a lot of shit from other Egyptologists. Yep. 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 Uh, even though he's not an Egyptologist, he's a geologist, but. He gets all this crap from other people, you yeah. know, you're wrong, we're right because we know it all, we're part of this group. But, you know, if shock proves them wrong, they have to go rewrite their textbook that they wrote. Well, I, I, so, I always said that in the past, I, I, I understand that that's why some of these people are probably so ferocious about their defense sure. of what it is because they've built an entire career on yeah, this. Yeah. And I get if how, they have their theory out there that I, they go and yeah, lecture on. And, I get how threatening that could be. You know, they've you know, talked about how the sky's blue forever, and then all of a sudden I come along and go, you know, prove it's purple. But then, but, but what's the truth? I mean, aren't you in the? You would think you you would be in academia to learn, no matter what, to learn and truth? accept the truth and, and to to go after it. But yeah, that's yeah. not always the case with everybody. No, I I think I think some people I think I think when it comes to this topic, I think a lot of people they I think everybody comes into it with the pure intention, like I want to I'm gonna I'm gonna go after the truth. Yeah. But I think, you know, once you build something, you know, you don't want to destroy that. You've built something. I understand that. So that's where it's I your, think it's, you know, it's, it feels like it's your integrity. Yeah. And and that that's where your that's reputation. frustrating. And that's where we have what we talked a bit about with uh with Mr. Stephen Brody. Uh, Browdy. Jesus Christ. Bro. I just call him Brody. I'm just <laughs> bro- on the night. Brody. 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 What's up, Brody? He's our bro. No. Uh, he was Steve, our bro tonight. He was our bro tonight, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic guy. Amber, tell yeah, us Yeah, he's more. got a pretty lengthy bio. Oh, dude, the guy's um, done everything. Well, yeah. So he received his PhD in philosophy from the University of Massachusetts Amherst in 1971. After working as a lecturer in the philosophy department at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, he found a permanent home at the University of Maryland, Baltimore, working successfully as an assistant, associate, and then a full professor. And he's received numerous fellowships, awards, and grants. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one's pretty cool, too. He got one, uh, a grant for, for from the National Endowment for the Humanities, which is a pretty big deal within the research world. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so anyway, he's, he's done, done a lot of cool stuff. He's done. I don't well, necessarily a, have to keep reading all the cool stuff. He's and you know what? A pile of books. We did yeah. talk to him about this, but yeah. this yeah. says this on his wiki page. He's also an accomplished jazz pianist and composer. Yeah, you were all upset that we didn't talk. I know to him we should have talked to him about that because yeah. we could have actually gone into some kind of weird thing like how musicians channel music sometimes, yeah. how it comes from nowhere. I don't know. It would have been fun. Yeah. Um, but he's also an accomplished author because he has a ton of books out. Yeah, that, I got the list right here. Yeah. Uh, 
he he's been writing he 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 has six uh, you know major books out you know for, ranging from 1979 to 2014 his most recent recent books were 2007's the gold leaf lady and other parapsychological investigations which we talk about the gold leaf lady tonight uh and 2014 crimes of reason on mind nature and the paranormal uh we've had him on and i i go into this a little bit Stephen browdy was uh one of our old school guests we had back in the day. I was really excited that he was uh, more than happy to come on and talk to us again tonight. Enjoy our conversation with Stephen Browdy. So I was scouring some of the archives over the last couple months. And what I was doing that for was I wanted to try to catch up with some people from the old stuff we used to do. Uh, people that we had on the show that we that Doug and I just thought were phenomenal. That just blew our minds, right? And as I was going through these, I came across a gentleman named Stephen Browdy who we had on the show a couple times. I think we had him on in 2006. And then we had him on in 2008. Uh, and I, I, that name stuck right out to me. And, and all that stuff came back. And I was like, oh, I have to try to reach out to Steven. I wonder what he's up to these days. Uh, so I did. And Mr. Browdy is on the phone right now. Um, you are nice enough to come back here and join us, Steve. And it's been about 11 years since we've talked, I think. Yes, I don't think I'm risking overexposure. <laughs> <laughs> now, we had you on previously, as I said before, and we went all over the place. Uh, and I remember Doug and I, and this has been a years ago, but I do remember we, we'd have shows where we would just leave there feeling really good, like totally energized. Right. And this was one of those when we had you on both those times, I remember us just walking away going, man, I feel smarter <laughs> talking to this guy. Uh, and, and, and they were just wonderful times we had with you. So I, I'm, I thank you again for coming and joining us again. Uh, you've done a lot since uh, the last time we talked. Uh, you've written a handful of other books. I know what's their most recent book. It was like 2014. What's the most recent book that you wrote? That's called Crimes of Reason. Yes. Crimes of Reason. Why that title, if I may ask? Well, it has to do with two things. It has to do with the um, kinds of mistakes that I think are prevalent in the hard sciences and the brain sciences and the social sciences, mechanistic thinking, which I think is mostly improperly applied to uh, the realm of the mental. And it also has to do with the abominations I've been accused of by people I've criticized. <laughs> okay, well, we have to go into that now, I guess. Uh, what abominations are you referring to, sir? Well, that I disagree with them. <laughs> well, that and and this, you know, I hate to say it, and this today's climate that fits right in because <laughs> yes. it seems. I mean, not to, I don't want to go into the weeds on that, but uh, that's a real serious downfall I think we have with any type of academia out there or any type of critical thinking, whether it's paranormal or not, right? Uh, 
it's very difficult, I think, for people to sit down and have a conversation about something or even a spirited debate, right, where they may disagree. Heaven forbid they disagree on something and they can have a spirited conversation on that and express their viewpoints. Uh, it's very identity. I guess the, they, they, they coined the term like identity politics or identity, just identity itself, like your beliefs are your identity, right? And I think, and I think that's what people go on this war path now uh, when someone has a differing opinion than them, I guess. It, it's, well, this is one of the reasons I'm glad to have retired from teaching and administration. Uh, really? Universities have become indoctrination mills and uh, refuges for uh, intellectual and political intolerance. Well, those were some of the questions I had because I, I know when, when you are interested, in, especially in parapsychology, you just get like just stepped on for those interests in the academic world. And I know watching some in, uh, previous interviews with you on YouTube and stuff, that was one of the things where you weren't even going to come out of the closet and say, hey, I want to study this uh, until you got tenure. Um, and I just think that's so ridiculous that people in academia, 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 thank you, Scott. Academia. Um, why parapsychology? Why? Why are they so threatened by that study? Well, I think the phenomena are really deeply scary. Uh, it's easiest, I think, maybe to see in the case of psychokinesis or PK. I mean, think of it this way: if I can make a, uh, let's say, a pencil move a millimeter by thought alone. It's a very small step conceptually from doing that to making somebody drop dead by thought alone. Mm. So yeah. the existence of any PK at all forces us to take seriously a kind of magical worldview that most of us associate, usually condescendingly, only with so-called primitive cultures. It's a, it's a worldview according to which we might have to take seriously things like hexing and the evil eye and where we might have to, in principle be ready to take responsibility for things we'd just as soon be bystanders for. I mean, there are plenty of cultures around the world where this sort of thing is taken as a matter of course, but in developed countries, if you have a nasty thought about somebody and then that person has a serious accident, we're not comfortable about thinking that our nasty thought might have had something to do with it. But that is one of the implications of PK, and I think it freaks people out. Well, I, that, I mean, I can name... I mean, directly something that happened in relation to that, uh, as far as like a motorcycle accident I saw. Uh, and I mean, I, and the reason that that popped in my head, Stephen, was that's how I felt after I saw that these, these guys on motorcycles were riding very fast and very recklessly. And when they came by me and they were kind of, they kind of were trying to force, you know, bully me around as in my, my car, right on their motorcycles. And of course, what my mind said was, I hope that guy lays that bike down on the freeway, you know, doing 175 <laughs> miles an hour. Right. And sure enough, a couple miles up the road, I see nothing but brake lights and I see ambulance lights. And sure enough, one of these bikes is, is in a million pieces. And one of these guys is covered with a sheet. The other two guys are sitting there crying. And wow. the first thing that I thought, yeah. And this was like within the span of like 10 minutes, the first thing I thought was, oh, my God, you know, I had these horrible thoughts about this person and they came true. Did I have, yeah, did I have a part in that? Did I put a curse on him? You know, I mean, 
I think that's what goes through everybody's mind when that happens. And it's scary. And I guess I've never heard uh, it looked at this way by, by, you know, by hard science where they would say like, okay, things like PK, like you were saying, uh, they're scoffed at, but it, it really is out of fear. You think that, I mean, it, if these if this was a real thing, like the, I guess in a scientist's mind, if this was a real thing, uh, they, they truly are that scared. I guess I don't. I mean, I, 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 that, that's what's kind of messing me up here, Stephen. Is this is this is what they actually think? They're actually fearful of this stuff. Well, I don't think it's conscious, but it's hard else otherwise to explain the blast of irrationality that crop up as soon as I start talking about the subject. Back at UMBC, uh, I was invited by the physics department at one point to give a talk about my investigations of psychokinesis. I think it was the grad students who must have invited me. And the physics faculty were all there in addition to the grad students. And as soon as I started to talk and, ex and talk about PK, I got it's, – it's as if a veil of stupidity uh, fell over the faculty there. <laughs> and they started trotting out the weakest possible arguments and demonstrating their ignorance of the data. And the grad students were embarrassed by all of this. <laughs> These were their mentors. Yeah, and they, yeah. they shouted me down. I couldn't give the talk. Well, another thing I had, I had heard about your students is that they were actually being threatened to not take your course on philosophy and parapsychology by other professors. I, I, Mostly that, in the psychology department. Yeah, that's true. So that just shocked me that I, I was just dumbfounded by that. Like, well, I, well, how recent was this, if I may yeah. ask? I mean, how recent well, was Well, I retired this? eight years ago, and I oh, think okay. things have probably gotten only worse. Oh, really? I mean, because now it's like, it's scary. I mean, what we've well, we, within we, academia. We've yeah. Already, yeah, within, within colleges. Yeah. Uh, yes. we, we've already yes. talked about that. And, it's very hostile now, and so it was. It, it, it's kind of scary or surprising that it was happening just eight years ago too. I thought this was something that was really only popped up in the last four or five years. No, but, this is an old story. Oh my goodness, that's freaky. It's depressing. It is depressing. It's totally depressing. Let's talk about patience worth. Um, <laughs> I because I you know the stuff we were kind of going over here. Patience worth. Why does we have our you know? I mean, I have my exposure to this too. But why does why does this why does this subject interest you so much? I have to ask. Well, it's a fascinating case of apparent mediumship. This was all about a woman in the early part of the 20th century mm -hmm. in St. Louis. She was a kind of middle class housewife named Pearl Curran, and in July of 1913, all of a sudden she started channeling. Uh, ostensible communications from an entity who claimed to be an Englishwoman from the 17th century and whose name was Patience yeah. Worth. Yeah. And, and Patience Worth, through Pearl Curran, produced, I think, six novels, thousands of poems, many volumes, 29 volumes altogether of writings of Patience Worth in the Missouri Historical Society in St. Louis. Uh, some really interesting literature, the poetry in particular is fabulous. And demonstrating a kind of knowledge that Pearl Curran had no access to and a literary ability that she'd never demonstrated before. And although this looks like a case suggesting survival of death, there really is no evidence that there ever was such an entity named Patience Worth living in the appropriate place in uh, the UK. And so the case is an illustration of, I think, dissociation and latent abilities 
with a, a little bit of psychic functioning perhaps thrown in for good measure to explain how Pearl could have known about some Anglo-Saxon root words, which even scholars of the time had to search for. Okay. Now you said that patient's worth was never really, they, they didn't, they couldn't find her, I guess. No, uh, when I wrote my book, Immortal Remains, I had a lot of friends in the UK uh, helping me try to find any records indicating that there was a patient's worth in Dorsetshire. Uh, I went through lots of historical Mormon records here in this country to see if uh, anybody by that name came to the U.S. and patients claimed that she did come to the U.S. and was eventually killed by Native Americans. Okay. But so if she, go ahead, Amber. Uh, well, I was just, this case has always interested me because I, I have a lifelong interest in Ouija boards and uh, communication through them. And I, when I saw your connection with multiple personality disorders in this particular case, it, it got me really interested in looking at it that way. Um, Cause there was something with like when people have multiple personality disorders, mm -hmm. they can all of a sudden change even physical characteristics. Isn't that true? That Absolutely. Faces we've known yeah. that hypnotic or dissociative phenomena like that have happened ever since the early days of Mesmer. And so those things aren't paranormal, but they're interesting as hell. Yeah, yeah. And I just, I don't know. You think about these people that like patient, well, or Pearl Coran, who has barely any schooling whatsoever, right. and then all of a sudden slips into this mode where she can dictate. Or eloquence and all these things. Just everything. Yeah. And, and start Extremely writing these eloquent. novels yeah. um, that are historically accurate. That to me is like, what are you, what was she tapping? Even if it's, even if it is a multiple personality disorder type thing, what is your brain shifting to tap into that? That's what I well, find fascinating. It, it raises a bunch of questions about latent human abilities and the things that can excite them or uh, incite them. And that's why I discussed the case of patients worth in connection with uh, equally interesting cases of what used to be called idiot savants, now just called savants and prodigies. I mean, there are lots of remarkable human beings whose remarkableness we really have no clue about. I mean, savants are a perfect case of this. I mean, savants are people who have fantastic abilities at the same time as having disabilities which you think would render the abilities impossible. I mean, there are calculating savants who can factor any number you give to them but can't add the change in their pocket. There's a famous musical savant who's spastic until he sits down to play the piano. <laughs> well, and that that runs in. Uh, we I've seen that with lots of eccentrics. I mean, I don't even know if they're savants, but I found that just with eccentrics, like in my professional life and things like that, these are people who are absolutely genius at at, at the work we do, uh, but they really can't function outside of that too well. <laughs> you know, and it's I mean, they're they're probably a, a way less extreme case of what we're talking about. But, I mean, they're, I think they're around us every day, people like this. I mean, they find something they're very, very good at. They, they focus on something they're very, very good at intellectually, but they don't really possess a lot of skills outside of that, I find. Um, and they need help. Sometimes they need assistance with things like that. It, I find that very interesting, too, that they can, be, they can be so, I mean, they can, the rest of us, they can just put us in the dust at what we do for, you know, for our work, right? Uh, but other it is than that, interesting, yeah, it, it's, and it, it's, it suggests that abilities are a little bit more isolable than you might think. Yeah. And it suggests that our knowledge of what human abilities are and what the connections between them are is really at a very primitive stage right now. 
That's actually one of the topics I discuss in Crimes of Reason. Oh, really? Now, you mentioned, um, I, I saw this too, transplant cases. Oh, yeah. Tell me about these. You're intrigued by these. Why? Very intrigued. I mean, this might be a new type of evidence for a survival. It's the kind of thing that can only be evidence in a technologically advanced culture. Um, these are cases where recipients of heart or lung transplants take on personality characteristics of the donor of whom the recipient knows nothing. Really? So, for, so for example, yeah. um, well, there was a really interesting case of a, uh, of a young man who received, I forget if it's a heart or a lung transplant, from a lesbian painter. And... After the transplant, he developed an unprecedented interest in art. He would spend hour after hour in art galleries just admiring the paintings. Uh, he started carrying a purse. And his girlfriend reported that his lovemaking changed dramatically, and it showed an intimate knowledge of the female anatomy that he'd never displayed before. Oh, <laughs> wow. Um, we've, I've heard about this, too. Um, you know, and this is... And, this was the stuff of horror movies 20, 30 years ago. I mean, really, it was. I mean, I, I mean, joking but not joking. Uh, yeah, yeah. This was something right. that was it was more of a, a subject of, you know, like like what, what messed up thing can we do with this? Like, well, here's a cool idea. Right. Uh, but this is actually something where I've heard of these these cases also, Stephen, where people take on you know, and, and what that makes me think is that obviously, you know, a heart or a lung or a kidney, something that can be transplanted, right? A brain now, they're doing brains. Um, it's more than just a piece of meat that has a function, I guess. I hate to say it that way, but it's more than just this, this, this construct, this mechanical device, this biomechanical device in your body that has one job and one job only. It, 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 with, if going along with this transplant idea, this is something that is on the, I guess, the biomolecular level, it's a, it's a part of you. And when it, it's not just, it, it's not just one part. I mean, I, I'm, I'm totally, I'm falling apart here. I'm trying to formulate <laughs> this thing. This is, this is, it's hard to okay, think. Let me, let me let help him you. Do I, think it. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. I think what you're getting at is yeah. the idea of cellular memory of some kind. There we go. Thank you. Yeah. And thank you. I actually think that's a dead end because I don't think memories can be encoded. But, really? Um, I, I have a, a slightly different take on it, and admittedly, it's a quirky take on it. But uh, we know about haunting cases, yeah. And these are cases where apparently deceased individuals hover around uh, important locations to them. Now, the way I, I look at some of the transplant cases is that they suggest that the deceased are actually hanging around their still living vital organs. Okay, but what? And but, one of the reasons I say that, yeah, there's one particular transplant case. You know, we learn a lot from children who haven't yet been polluted by a lot of education. Yeah, and there's plenty of evidence suggesting that um, young children do better at ESP tasks before they're educated out of the possibility of ESP. Um, so there was this one case. I forget who is Jerry and who is Carter, but these are the two names. There was a young boy who received a heart or a lung transplant. Let's say Jerry received it from Carter. Mm -hmm. um, 
the way Jerry experienced this was that Carter was hanging around him all the time and that there were times when he just yielded and let Carter take over. And I'm inclined to take that testimony from the young boy seriously because he was not predisposed to interpret what was happening to him in one way rather than another. This is hard to get your head around. <laughs> but it's just a whole other it's really interesting to, yeah, to wonder is. if if they're actually I, well, I like your body's haunted it's like you become you become haunted but but that's assuming the person that is donating the donating the body part is dead though there's been cases where people i mean I, okay, okay they, like a kidney well yeah let's say a kidney but you know i and i don't know i don't know if people personally. are picking up on the same things as it does seem to be more predominant with heart and lungs for some reason yes, heart and lungs yes, yeah not yeah. not kidneys not though. necessarily kidney I don't know about, I mean, that people get bone marrow transplants. Um, I, I don't know. There's not as much evidence of yeah. this kind as I'd like. I'd like to see more people open to reporting it and patients open to expressing it. I mean, well, I think this is a potentially rich field to explore. Yeah. Who's that recent guy? Uh, I heard it uh, listening. Uh, C.T. Fletcher. Yeah. The weightlifter. Yeah. The, you know C.T. Fletcher. He got a heart transplant. He got a heart transplant. And... They were asking him about that. Have you felt anything, any type of thing? And he, he's like, I, he didn't really allude to anything. He's like, I feel a bit different though. And I think maybe you're just going to feel different, just because you know you got somebody else's heart in your body. Yeah, right. Sure, but sure. He didn't really go on to say, and I mean, and he was like, the, but they went out. I think that he said the doctor made it a point to say like he didn't tell him. Where who like who or where the heart came from? Yeah, so then so he has no idea. That would be interesting. And if all of a sudden he started saying, "Oh, you know, something about, I don't know," just starts bringing taking on well, characteristics, yeah, take, and that's then what I'm saying he learns, has no like, idea. Yeah, learns five years later that everything he has said and described about this particular person he's seen or feeling uh, is, is the exact person he got the heart from. Like that, ah, so yeah. cool. Yeah. Well, that's why I'd like to see more cases of yeah. this sort. It would help us resolve questions just like this. I think people are. The problem with that right there, though, Stephen, I think people are so focused on trying to stay alive. <laughs> sure. They don't. Th- sure, of course. I mean, and it's a, it's a natural thing. I mean, they're just focused on that thing. And I mean, to me, yeah, if I was going through that, I would be, I'd be very curious coming out of something like that because that's just how our minds are wired here in this studio. Uh, I'd probably be thinking about like, where did this come from? Who is this person? Am I am I going to start liking? liver now to eat liver and onions <laughs> when i hate that stuff i mean what's going to happen to me so another thing we were, we wanted to talk about here though too with you was um well the, the question is simple why exactly do you think it's difficult if not possible to prove that people survive death um that's a mouthful right there i mean short sentence big meeting uh, but what are your thoughts on that sir well, let me just back up a little bit. Okay. To, the question I, I ask when I consider the evidence for survival is pretty specific. I mean, there's a lot of evidence suggesting survival. It looks like cases of survival. But I think the question we really need to ask, and the one that scholars are asking, I think, is, is there or can there be scientifically compelling evidence of survival of bodily death, or at least an otherwise rational basis for belief in survival Mm -hmm. of bodily death. Okay. And we would say that a case suggests survival when two conditions are met. The first condition is that some living person shows knowledge associated with the deceased person, 
or abilities closely or uniquely associated with the deceased person. And secondly, that we have good reason to believe that the knowledge or abilities weren't developed through ordinary means. So, for example, um, if you go to a medium and the medium says, your Uncle Harry's with me, and Uncle Harry wants you to know that he had a secret will that he left in a, a secret compartment in his desk, and then nobody, and let's suppose that nobody normally knows about that. Yeah. And then we go to the desk and we find it. That would be something that strongly suggests survival of bodily death. But there's a problem, okay? The problem is that so long as this obscure information from a medium can be verified, it can also be explained in terms of the medium's ESP. Mm -hmm. One of the remarkable things about good psychics is that they don't need much to go on to hone in on what their target's supposed to be. I mean, we know from the remote viewing studies, uh, Stargate, uh, that good remote viewers can describe a target indicated only by a digital version of geographical coordinates. Yeah. And mediums could be just like that. They could be like exactly. remote viewers, and they're just tapping into their target source. It's not a number, one, two, three, uh, picture folded up in an envelope somewhere, but it's this other part that's out there on the conscious grid. It's yeah. someone's aunt. That's their target. And uh, no, I think that's what's kind of going well, on. Because when I was reading yeah. Stephen's opinions too on life after death, I sometimes have it. And I, I mean, maybe it's morbid, but I sometimes have these thoughts that once we die, we just die. That what's going on right now is actually way more fascinating than our kind of current belief system that you know we're, we die and we float around our grave and we check on people and we we do this that and scare people, whatever. I mean, this kind of folkloric idea in the afterlife. And I think consciousness our brains all these other things going on are affecting things way more than we even can even begin to wrap our minds around because you know academia doesn't take parapsychology seriously (laughs) things like that it'd be really cool if i could get my hair back well yeah (laughs) (laughs) i I, I was once i used to know this famous baltimore psychic and healer olga worrell and I was once in Olga's house and I was playing something on the piano for them and um, after I was done there came a crashing sound from the piano and also a sound as if one of the low strings had been plucked and there was nothing on the piano that could have caused any of those sounds and I said to Olga half jokingly, is anyone sitting next to me on the piano bench? And she said, no dearie, but your grandfather's behind you, your mother's father. And I said, well, can you describe him? And she said, well, he's very broad. And I said, okay. And she said, and he has a beard. I said, well, he never used to have a beard. And she said, well, he does now. He can have a beard if he wants. <laughs> I guess There's no way really to answer that. Yeah, you know? no. Um, Stephen, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was your experience in graduate school when you actually saw a table table levitate for multiple hours. What how- – what did it wasn't you... a full levitation. It was tilting, but it was tilting in a very peculiar way. It was We were standing next to the table. It was tilting under our fingers, which were lightly touching the table. Given the way we were standing, our knees couldn't possibly have lifted the table. Our hands were not sticky. If one of my friends got up to leave temporarily, um, the table would continue to rise under the fingers of the two people who remained, rather than as if pressure was being applied. The, the part that rose was the part under our fingers. 
So were you actually doing like a good old fashioned like seance table tipping type thing and then and witness that or it was just something kind of weird spontaneous uh, phenomenon that was happening? No, my friends, none of us knew anything really about parapsychology. My friend, it was a slow day in Northampton, Massachusetts, and my friend said, <laughs> let's play this game called Table Up. Okay. <clears throat> they said they'd done it a couple of times, and um, when it worked, it was a lot of fun. And I knew nothing about parapsychology at the time. I considered myself in those days to be a kind of hard-nosed materialist. Not for any particularly good reason. It was just a kind of intellectual conceit I was cultivating then. And... So f for the next three hours, we watched the tables spell out answers in response to questions. And to show you how little my friends knew about this, if they had known anything at all about table tilting, they would have known that the most efficient way to do this kind of thing is to ask yes-no questions and then have the table tilt like once for yes and twice for no. Yeah. My friends had the table tilt once for the letter A, twice for the letter B. Oh, my God. That's why it took three <laughs> damn hours to get okay. messages. <laughs> okay, that makes sense. <laughs> That explains that. Yeah, that explains the length of time with that. Then, <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> but that but that makes me think about this this old school, um, like so, parapsychology from back in the day. And and one of the things that you you've written about are Dee Dee Holmes, uh, Dee Dee Hume, and Eusapia Palladino, and um, sometimes get criticized for. Uh, talking about them and suggesting that yes, they they maybe did have true mediumistic abilities. Um, that even if they did things once in a while that was a little fraudulent, it dis it didn't necessarily discredit them. And I think right. that's interesting. Well, Eusapia even admitted she cheated. Hume was never caught cheating. I mean, there have been allegations that Hume cheated, but they're all second or third hand, and none of them was ever confirmed. Um, Hume's case lasted about a quarter of a century with one-year intermission when he converted to Catholicism uh, and lost <laughs> his ability. And so I guess he renounced Catholicism <laughs> thereafter. Well, I mean, but yeah, go, ahead, go ahead, Stephen, sorry. But yes, Eusapia cheated, and that complicates matters. But in Eusapia's case, the irony is that um, it was because she had a reputation and even admitted for, that she would cheat. Um, at one point... The Society for Psychical Research in London sent their three most experienced debunkers of mediums to Naples to investigate her. And over the course of 11 seances, under very tight conditions, um, they recorded almost 500 phenomena that they couldn't explain. And all three of them were converted grudgingly and gradually from total skepticism about PK to a belief in the phenomenon. Well, and it makes me think, too, that these these if someone is a genuine medium and they have these abilities or they just they're able to use their psi abilities in some way unlike regular people you maybe you can't be on all the time so you got this pressure on you to perform and if you want to keep up your reputation sometimes you might have to fake something to keep it going and then that's when you get busted and everyone's like oh you weren't real so I just made sure, me think, that's, yeah that's why it's it's very tempting and that's why it's difficult to make a living doing this and I prefer to investigate people who don't do it professionally and don't rely on this for their livelihood. Well, and that's where I think, and that's exactly, the, the, I think those are the best people to talk to right there. Because I think that there is this case of the showmanship, the performance aspect of this thing. Um, how I've never heard it put, I mean, I've, I guess I've always been kind of very, you know, black and white with that myself when it comes to mediums and psychics um 
if they if they're caught faking to me they're a, I, I honestly i'm like well that's a fake all around but maybe it isn't quite that simple maybe it is some like we're saying where somebody may genuinely have abilities but I mean, every psychic I've talked to or most people I've talked to, mediums, whatever they may be, um, they all say that. They're like, this is not an exact thing we're doing still. We're still trying to figure out stuff ourselves, and we can't just turn the switch on and off at will. Sometimes it just doesn't work that well. So There are some mediums who have negative or empty seances, and I admire their courage for their willingness to do that. Um, but they're in a distinct minority, I believe. Well, but there are the people, like we said, that are forced to perform. And, and who have no other means of making a decent livelihood. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, that, there's just no other. It's not. It just isn't that simple, I guess. Right. As far yes, as. Right. I mean, and maybe. Maybe. I mean, I, I'm going to take that away probably from this conversation is maybe I shouldn't be so critical because I am, I tend to be very critical on psychics and mediums, uh, even the ones that I've talked to that are, that have said some pretty interesting stuff to me. Uh, none of it to me is, unfortunately, and I and I've made, I've poked fun at some of this stuff in the past. I've had I've had readings from people, for example, where they say things, and I know you're 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 going to laugh when you hear this, Stephen. Where they say things to me like, "Well, I'm talking to your your grandfather right now." I'm like, "Oh, great, cool. What's he up to?" Well, he's sitting in a chair. Okay, well, he liked doing that when he was alive. That's that's cool. We all like sitting in chairs. We're sitting in chairs right now. It's amazing. Um, and I'm like, okay, well, he's sitting in a chair. You know, what's he up to? Well, he he wants me to tell you that you need to spend more time with your family, and my response to that simply is, who the fuck doesn't need to spend more time with their family? Right. I mean, that, that right. there's nothing profound right. to me. Generalization. It's very general. It's very simple. And there's not a person on the planet who has a family who who doesn't. They need. We all need to spend more time with our family. So it's it's quite simple. So that's the stuff that I tend to be kind of critical about this stuff. I mean, that's, As you should be. That's not that that's not telling me anything I don't already know. And I mean, I'm not expecting for someone to to, to sum up the the spirit of my of my dead grandmother and have her sit in front of me and have a conversation with me. I don't think that's 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 that simple for obvious reasons either. Uh, but I think maybe I should be. A little less critical because maybe you know I think a lot of people truly do have abilities, but they're forced into situations where it's like okay, dance monkey, and that's not the way it should be. That's well, not. We the also way. need to be realistic about this. I mean, in most areas of human performance, nobody's on or at their best all of the time. In baseball, we say a hitter is good if he gets a hit one out of three times. Yeah, that's true. And not everybody has a, you know not everybody's on at their job every day. Um, right. That doesn't mean you should be fired. <laughs> right. Sometimes you have a bad day. Sometimes you're not as productive as you you may want to be or should be. That doesn't mean you should lose your job. So that's a very you know interesting take on that to look at it that way. Because I've always said I've always been very, like I said, very critical on that side of it. And maybe I shouldn't be such a jerk, huh, Amber? And also right. in, in Eusapia's case, if she hadn't been so suspicious. And if she hadn't admitted that she would cheat if given the chance, she would not have been tested under the conditions that were as tight as they were. And the evidence for the genuineness of her phenomena wouldn't be as tight as it is. So that's a, that's a, a positive outcome on that then. That's very good. Yes. That's yes. excellent. The gold leaf lady. Uh -huh. uh, yeah. <laughs> 
Let's talk about the Gold Leaf Lady for a second. Yeah, this is a weird one. Let's talk about the case. Can we just, can we just get a brief one on this for people that don't know about it? Because I know there's a lot of people that do, but there's a lot of people that don't. Can we just get a brief this thing is, on the Gold Leaf Lady? This is a woman in Florida whose body would break out spontaneously and instantaneously in a kind of golden colored foil. Uh, you could see this happening right before your eyes uh, at close range. She did not have control over it. It was more like an affliction. So she could not prevent it when it started to happen. She might be buying something at the 7-Eleven and suddenly stuff would break out on her face, you know. So what do you say to the cashier under those conditions? Um, she was a good all-round psychic, but the interesting thing about Katie is that none of her psychic abilities emerged until she married her second husband. And by all accounts, it was a kind of difficult marriage. Um, and Katie started to experience a lot of poltergeist-type phenomena around her house at, initially. So objects were rearranging themselves, moving, and things were appearing and disappearing. And one day a carving set appeared, apparently out of nowhere, and Katie's husband said to her, what good is it if it isn't money? Oh. And two days, two days later, her body started to break out in what looks like uh, gold leaf. Oh. And so my pop psychological analysis of this is that symbolically this satisfies Katie's husband's demand to produce something valuable, but she doesn't really have to bear the responsibility of being the goose that laid the golden egg. And also because it was a difficult marriage, and I think Katie in many ways felt trapped in it, um, this was a way of expressing her rage against her husband. He wanted something valuable and she was giving him fool's gold. She was giving him the psychic finger. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> wasn't it brass? Yes, it yeah. was brass. And I should add that these were. This was just one of many abilities that Katie started to display. She could uh, apparently bend metal, make seeds germinate in her hands. She worked with the police to solve crimes. And although she had only a first-grade education and was functionally illiterate, when she was in a mediumistic trance, she could write out quatrains in medieval French from Nostradamus. So that's it. Like we were just going back with patience worth. It's a similar kind of concept yeah. and idea. Well, yeah, it's, it's like this... what are they tapping into? I, I'm right. curious when when this lady when gold leaf appeared on her the brass did it actually come out of her skin or did it just like appear stuck on her like a sticker? It it sometimes looked like it was coming out of her skin because her skin would initially glisten a little bit first. And sometimes you might see little droplets, but then suddenly the droplets would become f flat expanses of this foil. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, it sometimes also appeared on her clothing and in objects around the room. So she was not sweating it. And besides, I think, given the quantities that would sometimes appear on her body, she would have had to have lethal amounts of copper and zinc in her system. Well, yeah, And medical yeah. tests never showed anything anomalous like that. So... As far as why this was happening, did, it was her. It was her creating this phenomena, or was it That's something else? That's the way else? I look at it. it okay, I, I think I know more about the psychogenesis of it than I do about whether this was a materialization phenomenon or whether she was apporting uh, brass leaf from art supply stores or something like that. That we don't know. Yeah, yeah. Now, I I know there 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 was this was a pretty there was a lot of debate around this case and um i'm curious to know also uh, what was the skeptical viewpoint on this how was this explained uh, away by skeptics 
I think we should ask how it was, how they attempted to explain it. <laughs> uh, okay. I was down there with the crew from Unsolved Mysteries when they did their segment on, on Katie. Mm-hmm. And originally, their segment was uniformly positive, and the execs at NBC freaked out about this and so sent it to Paul Kurtz at State University of New York to make incompetent suggestions about it. And so we had his students do the following. They, they, one student sprayed brass foil all over her body and stuck it there with hairspray. And she even had it stick on her tongue that way because sometimes it would appear in Katie's mouth. And Paul Kurt said, see, this is what Katie did. Now, that was a really cheap attempt to explain it away and absolutely failed to engage what was most interesting about the case, which is that the foil would appear spontaneously and instantaneously before people's eyes. I mean, there are lots and lots of observers of this phenomenon. I saw it happen several times. There are people who, many people who told me they would be holding Katie's hand and suddenly her arm would break out in the stuff. So it's not a matter of spraying it on with hairspray. And besides, detailed microscopic analysis of the and chemical analysis of the foil never showed residue of anything like hairspray. I mean, I don't. Maybe I'm digging a little too deep here, but they obviously, as you just said, they did do deep analysis on what was coming out of her. Yes. Was yes, it, I had analytical chemists look at it. Yeah. I had the material science departments at several universities look at it. Uh, my university looked at it under an electron microscope. Mm-hmm. Nothing unusual about the the foil itself. They, I, I'm curious to know if there was like if her DNA was in it or anything like that. Like I mean, as far as what was in this, you know, what can I, I don't I don't know how to even say that, but like, or just how the hell it came out of well, her. Well, just if your mind, if you are actually somehow you can apport things like making something from like, like Steven mentioned a craft store up here just on your body suddenly, which that whole thing is awesome because I would do that with snacks. (laughs) Just anytime I want a snack, just think about it. There it comes. (laughs) It's, but it's such a, it's such a foreign idea to, to, to think that something can just materialize out of you like that. Um, well, there's plenty of evidence for materializations, but uh, this is the only case quite like this one that I know of. Well, I'm just trying to get my head around this one still. This is, and this is one of them cases we've known about it for years, and it's just trying to understand that idea of, of something. I mean, I, I'm running myself in circles now. I'm going to stop now, I promise, too. But uh, just tr- picturing that, because, I mean, obviously, I didn't see that, but seeing that just come out of, and, and like you were saying it was more of like a, a a liquid that came out of her skin and that would turn into the sheets uh, so only sometimes only, only sometimes. sometimes the skin would glisten a little bit uh, sometimes katie would just feel an irritation where um the foil would subsequently appear so like there was something bothering her on her skin and then it would break out and i'll add also that katie exhibited some of the phenomena um mentioned earlier we know of from cases of hypnosis and multiple personality there would be raised areas on her skin in the shape of a cross or a butterfly what was going on this is a a dumb question amber you're raising your hand no no go ahead go finish your thought but you're raising your hand for the class i mean i mean as far as like the, the 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 ball like the whole ball of wax here steven 
what do you think she was experiencing? I mean, maybe it's a bit broad of a question. I'm sorry, but I'm just trying to understand what this woman was going through. It's a good question. We never really got to the bottom of this. And when Katie's principal investigator, Bert Schwartz, died about nine or ten years ago, yeah, uh, I, I lost track of Katie. I've tried to reach out to her. Uh, I know she can't read my book. No. <laughs> but uh, I tried to friend her son on Facebook, and he didn't accept the uh, invitation. So you think she just wants to be left alone? Could be. I mean, I wonder if she's still, yeah, I mean, well, we're, we don't know. You don't know if you're not in contact with her, if, she, if right. she's still being, a, you know, still experiencing this stuff. It's, right. uh, it's a bizarre, bizarre case. You know, in general here, uh, these are things I'm just thinking of. I mean, you've seen all these things, Steve. You've, you've, you know, you've been witness to so many of these cases. As far as the idea, I mean, are you convinced of anything? At, 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 I mean, at least at this point in, you know, in your life and career, are you convinced of anything as far as are do we I mean as far as maybe let's just say life after death I mean we've kind of talked about that here uh, back and forth tonight uh, what are your thoughts as far as I mean do you think we really do step you know move on from this physical this physical construct that we're a part of right now as far as just these heavy bodies and this heavy existence we have do you really think we step away from that once this body we live in stops working I guess well, that narrowly focused question that I mentioned earlier on in the interview, mm -hmm. that I have not answered to my satisfaction. Yeah. But if you ask me what my gut level inclination is, it's that, yeah, at least some of us survive bodily death, at least for a time. Yeah. But I don't think I can satisfy myself that the scientific version of that question has been answered successfully. Well, in all the people I've talked to over the years, it's... I'm trying to understand this on a mechanical level, and I know that's what you're trying to understand too, Stephen, is just how the heck does this machine work? When the body stops working, what processes are put in place on a mechanical level? I want to I know how the machine works. How, what, do we, hit a, do we go to a transfer station? <laughs> Where do we go uh, to move on to this next, what a lot of people say, this next uh, level of, ex of experience or consciousness, we say, or we say, I want to know how it works, you know, as far as a process is concerned. And that's something that no one can obviously answer that question with any type of definitive, uh, any type of definition or proof or anything, because we don't have it. <laughs> well, and, and as a philosopher familiar with lot, most of the metaphysical moves that people make in this domain, I would have to say that um, people have been spinning their wheels about that question for centuries. Yeah. And I'm not satisfied with any of the proposed solutions. Uh, and in some ways, I don't think it matters. I think we'll find out one way or another. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, one thing I've been focused on, and there's been a handful of people, friends and family that have passed away in the re in recent years. <laughs> and I've been getting myself into this mindset of just the, the, the process of dying itself. Uh, not only what happens after that, but I'm curious to know, you know what's happening when you're going through that process I, and, and i i know it probably sounds a bit morbid but it's a curiosity like I, I think anything else is uh what are you experiencing when your body is physically shutting down what is your mind experiencing as a result of it? i mean i mean i'm sure that you know in a lot of cases there's pain for some people right uh that so that's not quite pleasant but some people just pass on right 
They just pass Well, what away. we know from the near-death experience literature is that for most people at any rate, apparently the experience of dying or at least coming very close to death is blissful. And as I understand it, the final words of Steve Jobs were, or was, wow. <laughs> well, I mean, I think you have to get past a certain point where you go into that blissfulness. I've heard the same thing too. Um, like I said before, I think there, there's probably some discomfort. I'm, I imagine if you're, if you're dying of a, of, of a disease, a certain illness, uh, you're going to feel some pain. But I guess maybe it's you get past that threshold. Right. Well, that's why there's that's, morphine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's well. My grandma passed. That's what they did with her. Yeah. They, 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 they literally told me. They said, "Hey, that's what hospice is for." Yeah. Well, they literally right. said to me, "They're like, she's going to die today. We're just giving her morphine to make her comfortable. That's it. Right. It's as simple as right. that." And she passed on. Uh, oh, Amber's raising her hand. <laughs> no, I just one of the one of the questions we were kind of like a central part of what we were talking about is this idea of psychokinetic abilities and psi. And uh, going through our list here, and one of the things you had said in, a, in an interview while I was stalking you on, on the internet <laughs> was um, this idea that, okay, if people have psychokinetic abilities, what does that tell us about the way the world works? So one of the things you said, people, maybe even animals, are influenced the world like daily, physically, psychologically, possibly, and then... Kind of also this idea of how that plays into synchronicities and meaningful coincidences. I just, I don't know if the two are connected or if any of this is connected, but I just feel like that is just uh, so interesting. No, it's a good question. And it connects with what I said earlier about hexing in the evil eye, but it it extends the observation. So, I mean, if we all have psychokinetic abilities, which can be triggered by presumably mostly unconsciously or subconsciously, so as not to freak us out. Um, I think it's reasonable to ask, what's the stage of operation for this kind of thing? So I've often proposed, you know, it probably wouldn't always be in very conspicuous ways. So if we're exercising our PK and we don't want to call attention to ourselves, we're not going to make tables levitate. Right. We're going to do things that could be explained normally. So there's no observable difference between a normally caused car crash, let's say, and one caused by PK. The only difference would be in their underlying causal histories. So if we want to get a handle on this, I usually suggest that we try to examine people who are unusually lucky or unlucky. And I prefer to look at people who are unusually unlucky. They're the most interesting. (laughs) Um, And they really exist. You know, there's an old Yiddish distinction between a shlemiel and a shlemazel. I may have talked about this previously on your show. Um, A shlemiel is someone who spills soup on himself, and a shlemazel has it spilt on him. So (laughs) the idea is that a shlemazel is an unlucky soul. Yeah. You know, a person who's being crapped on by the universe at large. But And they really exist. I was married to a shlemazel at one (laughs) point. My mom? My mom seems to have bad luck wherever she goes. Like well, oh, there's some people do see me. And then Doug, you know, our our former co-host on the show, yeah, yeah, Doug yeah, yeah. has like he's everywhere he goes. It's it's he, it's gold. He wins at the casino. Well, he yeah, wins he's lotto. got the Midas touch. I, yeah, he's got the Midas touch. I mean, yeah, it, it's 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 weird. But you know, as far as the the you know the the unlucky aspect, you know, and Amber, you say this to me uh, here and there. You're like, you know, you you get negative, and then things bad things are gonna happen. 
Because I'll start yelling and, and, and screaming about something. And you're like, well, you know, maybe you should have a better attitude. Is that my voice? Uh, no. Maybe, <laughs> maybe you should have a better attitude, That's not Scott. my voice. That's not right either. Uh, I mean, no. I mean, but well, I couldn't, think that attitude, be a part, couldn't that be a part of it, though? Well, if attitude potentially drives your sigh as small as it could possibly be. Yeah. And that's well, we know we can make things. ourselves sick or, yes. or yes. Yeah, even healthy by mm-hmm. thought alone. So if we can do that, we can perhaps make ourselves lucky or unlucky by thought alone. Yep. What? I've given myself upset stomachs from anxiety. Just even thinking about like, I'm going to go here. What if I get an upset stomach? Here it comes. Yeah. You know, and I don't know that was brought on mentally. That well, was me. I, I mean, I'm, I'm a walking. You're I'm like wa- that too. I'm a walking living example yep. of how bad thoughts can make you sick. And it's thoughts and become things. I'm dealing with it right now. I mean, stress and tension can make your body break down and do but weird things. The idea also that animals could be influencing the world and using some type of animal side that i don't know why that resonated with me because i thought wow we're the the human race are such jerks to animals it's disgusting <laughs> like, they could just be like all the elephants like, like thinking bad thoughts on humans like all day long like i don't know that well, that, that was kind of trippy too to think about maybe that's where <laughs> maybe that's where it is steven um maybe that's why the human race i mean and maybe you know here, here speaking of positive thoughts uh maybe that's why the human race is such i mean we're in such a shitter right now, it seems like, as people, just in this country alone. Um, I think attitudes are at their lowest, in my opinion, as far as people's general morale. People are angry. They're stressed out all the time. They're not focused on anything but the the, the really unimportant things, not the important things. Maybe it is the fact that we've been we've – been, I don't know any other nice way to say this. We've been fucking over the animals for so long uh, and more or less, uh, in my opinion – uh, terrorizing this plant in a lot of ways. Um, maybe it is this. Maybe it is this negative sigh the animal kingdom is throwing back on <laughs> us, uh, on us bipedals. Just the planet alone. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, it, it's a, Let me recommend a book by Ooh. Jewel Eisenbud called "Parapsychology in the Unconscious." Jewel deals with interesting things. I mean, he was a good observer of nature. And he thought there were interesting aspects of the predator-prey relationship that could only be explained psychically. Yeah. Um, and he also had some interesting experiences with mice in his house, which are worth reading about. Mm, yes. I watched. I will uh, be getting that. I, I flicked on. I was just watching documentaries while I was working today. I just for some background noise, and I was just looking like crime documentaries, things like that. And I came across like a, one of them YouTube videos. It's like, you know, the 10 most insane documentaries you should watch or something like that. Well, this will give me some pointers. Okay, cool. So I put it on. And the first two on the list literally are about like killing dolphins and then lab experiment, experiments on cats. Oh, God. And I just like literally got up from my desk, walked in the next room and hugged our cat. <laughs> I just sat there and hugged her. I'm like, oh, my God, nothing will ever happen. It, I mean, it made me upset. It made me so upset, Stephen. Just, just for that. I mean, I watched that video for about a minute and a half. I saw that, and I shut it off. I'm like, oh, my God. So that right there, it's just disturbing. It's, it's that negative sigh also. And to see that, I think that does change you. Uh, we're, not, we're not much nicer to other human beings. No. No, we're not. We're not. No, but I don't, there's something. I mean, and maybe that's just my small brain. You know, yeah, I don't want to see. I, I guess it's you know, to me, it's always the crime against the innocent, children, of course, and animals, 
right? Or the people we're closest to. Sometimes we take liberties with family that we wouldn't ever take with friends. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, But there is that, I mean, I think people tend to, yeah, they don't frown upon, at least that's me. Maybe it's just me. Yeah, you hear about, well, some guy got hit by a car uh, in the news today, and he was walking across the street. He got hit by a car. And you're like, oh, that, I'm, well, that, that's terrible. I'm sorry to hear that. And then you're, uh, yeah, a lady lost her cat, and cat got hit by a car. I'm weeping all over the place. I'm falling apart crying. Uh, I guess I just feel differently about animals. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know where it is. It's weird. But, I mean, is it all, I mean, I get, going on your thing, Amber, I mean, to me, it seems like it's all, it's just all, everything's related. It's all just tied together. Oh, I think a lot of stuff's more related than we can even begin to comp- like comprehend. I mean, I mean, Stephen, and I know we're buttoned up here pretty, pretty close to our time, but um, I mean, I believe that a lot. I, I mean, I've, that's something I do believe in is that I think as far as the, you know, where we're at now, as far as the planet we're on and the world we live in. I think we all do have an effect on each other. It's a ripple effect across everything. We, I've seen videos on this type of thing where you have one person that does one thing to another person. That person does something to another person. That person does something to another person. And depending on how the first person, you know, whether it was a positive thing, right, uh, or a negative thing, it determined how this line went along throughout a day. So it seems like we all can affect each other that way. So we should be nice. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. You're 100% right. I agree with that. Message yeah. of the show. Be nice. Don't use your side to kill people. <laughs> Just well, no, I mean, good thoughts. <laughs> or think, at least fake yourself out about it. Yep. I think the fact that, and I've, I've heard this from a lot of other people, the same thing, Stephen. People are like, if people were just more pleasant to each other, you would be amazed by the changes that would have on just the mental environment that we would be in. I think people are, especially where we live here in Metro Detroit, people generally people are pretty are angry. Yeah. They're pretty unpleasant at all. And, and, and they're doing the one thing I notice with people is that they're always trying to infringe on your space. So they're not, I guess it's malicious, but it seems like people are always trying to move it on just what little space you may have. And that makes it you happens in Las Vegas too. I can assure you. Yeah. You are <laughs> on Las Vegas, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so we're in the Motor City. He's in Sin City, so. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Stephen, I have to say thank you again. This is, th- I can't thank you enough uh, for visiting us again. It's been, I, as we said earlier, it's been a real long time. Uh, but every time well, we Well, if talk- I'm still around, I'll see you in 11 years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ghostly Talk. <laughs>